Hey everyone, welcome back. This is a new episode of Let's Grab Coffee. Really excited about today's interview because I get the chance to, to sit down with Anthony Zhang, who's the co-founder and CEO of VinylVest, a platform I started recently using. It's actually the world's first platform for investing in fine wine. And this is as an asset class. It's not for just consumption. Um, and, and so it's super interesting conversation about not only him building VinylVest, but also his journey uh, within entrepreneurship. He started as a startup founder uh, at quite a young age. You know, he built his first company at 18, eventually growing operations to 22 markets and employing over 1,500 people. He also does some angel investing on the side, which we do touch on, and the fact that he went through the Theo Fellowship, which if you're in the entrepreneurship world, you know how big that is. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Thanks so much for having me on, George. So as I, as I gave you context before we were recording, and this was actually an article I shared on LinkedIn, by the way, but the headline was uh, non-traditional ways to invest if you have a million dollars right now. I, I know it's, you know it sounds nicer than it, than it is, but the, the cool part about the article was it did provide ways, aside from just capital markets, to, to invest one's money. And one of those options was through VinoVest, which is a platform that you've created. Uh, we'll get into that in a second, but... But before we get to VinoVest, just curious, like what was your start with an entrepreneurship? Yeah, so my start with entrepreneurship really went, went back to high school, actually. So I, um, I went to a, a public high school and, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty competitive one. So like, you know, S- SAT prep, ACT prep, all that stuff was like super, super at top of mind. Um, and there was school kind of in, in the neighboring town that, um, really did not have any of those resources. Um, and, you know, just with like competing in sports and going to the YMCA, got to talk with a lot of those guys. And they're like, I, you know, I have no idea how to prep for college because I don't have any college prep materials. So my first business, it was actually a nonprofit that helped take uh, a lot of these kind of used uh, used textbooks, transfer them over to, to less fortunate students that maybe weren't able to afford them and know them and help them be able to research scholarship opportunities. So that was really my, my first business. Understood. And what was interesting, I, I think I was watching one of your, your previous interviews and you talked about, I believe, dropping out of, uh, of uni. It was kind of like one of those classical uh, serial entrepreneur stories. Um, curious, did that actually happen? And if so, how was that conversation with the, with the family? Yeah, so I, I did drop out of college um, for <laughs> running my, I, I guess that was my first like true business Envoy Now. Um, you know, we had gotten some, some uh, investment offers from really big, big VCs and uh, had gotten actually an offer to drop out of school through this program called the Teal Fellowship, where Peter Teal will give, um, you know, a certain amount of students every year, $100,000 pretty much as a grant to do whatever you want and drop out of college. So I, you know, went to my parents who both have, you know, they both went to college, both have, uh, you know, kind of um, master's degrees and doctorate degrees. And they're like, what do you want to do, you know, when you drop out? And I was like, well, I want to run this business. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here as a business student. The whole point is to run a business, right? I, I would love to be able to do that. And I think the really the main thing that like helped sway them was um, I was able to get them to talk with Teal fellows that had gone through the program in the past, you know, had done maybe two or three years into the future. And, you know, their businesses were thriving. They had a great network and they were 
you know, really, really all glad that they have that opportunity. And that really helped get my parents across the finish line. They're like, all right, you know, college will always be there for you. But this opportunity sounds like kind of a once in a lifetime thing to do. That, that, that's incredible. You know, one of my questions was going to be exactly that. Like, how do you get them to, I guess, uh, maybe see the similar vision that you see? Because sometimes, you know, especially if, if parents aren't necessarily in the entrepreneurial track or, or know as much within the community, it might be kind of daunting to, to, to go to them and say, listen, I'm going to skip uni for this. But when you present something like the Teal Fellowship, and for those who don't know, I mean, uh, this is literally one of the best uh, startup programs that entrepreneurs have to date, uh, especially ones that are under 23. Again, to your point, it grants them financing, but just even the exposure, man. Peter Thiel, you know, one of the co-founders of PayPal, one of the uh, most notable, let's say, entrepreneurs in the space. So just to have that, I think, commitment really helps one's belief to, to pursue this journey, right? Especially at an early time in your career. Absolutely. It was, uh, you know, I think that community was really powerful to be a part of, right? Because like dropping out of school, it sounds it sounds kind of glamorous. You know, you're doing a startup, but like you're really alone, right? Like as a CEO, as someone who's like 19 years old, I did not know anything about anything. And having other students or other recently dropped out uh, entrepreneurs that were going through the same journey, having that kind of peer mentorship, um, you know, really, really helped us get through, um, you know, the good times and the bad times. And so with Envoy now, which was, I guess, the, the startup you were working at at the time, that's the one that took you into the, the, the Teal Fellowship. Was that the case? Uh, yeah, that was the one. That was the one. It got acquired uh, in 2017. Given your first acquisition, and, and you know, I was on the M&A side, and, and sometimes I feel like this is another one where aspiring startup founders think it's more glamorous than sometimes it actually is, because typically, you know, the headlines that you read are usually of all the successful ones, right? The ones that make the big splash, the ones that are acquired by the big tech firms like LinkedIn, Amazon, Google. But it's not always the case. And I have, you know, run into, into these kind of situations where, I guess, companies raise a buttload of capital, they get to the M&A uh, front or the exit conversation, and it's not always fruitful, let's put it that way. I'm curious, how was that first acquisition like for you, Anthony? Yeah, so the first acquisition, you know, really did not know anything about going through that process. Um, so I did lean on some of our advisors and investors to be able to help me realize like what, what this process was like, right? Um, you know, we were lucky enough that at the time, you know, food delivery was going through a big consolidation period. You know, a lot of these bigger, more well-funded companies were just eating up smaller companies to get more market share. It was kind of a land grab. And we ended up with multiple offers, was able to actually bid, you know, bid them against each other. But obviously, I think at the time seemed like, you know, uh, you know, the only option to go through. Um, I think, you know, looking back, obviously, you can always think of ways that you can improve. But I think as an exit, you know, it's definitely a modest exit, at least was able to get positive returns for our investors, but uh, really not close to the, you know, kind of billion dollar exit that we were envisioning. But I think for me, the, the most important thing was being able to have uh, a positive outcome for you know, team members that had been there from the beginning had dedicated a lot of their blood, sweat and tears to it and also be able to fulfill you know, the fiduciary duty of being a founder and returning capital to, to investors. I'm kind of curious because we're going to jump into the other stuff that you've created and then what you're doing now. But it seems to me, dude, like you're, you're literally on paper and in real life, the, the kind of 
definition of what an entrepreneur is. And I feel like it's so difficult now because, you know, you, 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 you're seeing more glamorization within entrepreneurship. And I feel like it's, it's becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult to figure out whether this is the right route for you. Was, was it always something you knew that, hey, this is what I'm going to do? Like, when was that realization really solid for you that this was going to be your career path? I think with that first business on right now, it, it really just helped me solidify what I loved about entrepreneurship, which is a creating something from nothing, being able to impact other people's lives in a positive way with what you've created. And I think being able to create the type of, you know, life in terms of like everyday schedule and in terms of like the people that you want to be around or want to surround yourself with on a daily basis. So those are the things I love about entrepreneurship and um, you know, why I realized that it was something I couldn't really do without. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's a, it's a question I feel like I get asked often and it's one of those things that's hard, but I think from, from your story, what I'm getting at is the experience. Like that's what kind of what you're saying, right? Is you, you kind of have to test it. You have to go and build something on your own. And then I, I guess you can tell whether it's right for you or not. Yeah. Gotcha. Absolutely. So then you jump into this other uh, new venture called Know Your VC, which is, is really tried to, to democratize access to, to the business intelligence side for investors. Um, that was also eventually acquired in 2018 by Rate My Investor. What was the, the premise of that? How did the idea of that come about? So that idea really came about the some of the news that I you know was was reading back in back in 2017. So. Um, it was a, a number of founders that had bravely stepped up and shared their experiences, like really horror stories with some very, very well-known big VCs, you know, whether the, these VCs were, um, you know, sexually harassing female founders, they were being really discriminatory toward minority founders and essentially just like completely abusing their position. And um, I had actually pitched a few of those investors. One of them was actually, um, you know, an investor in Envoy Now, and I just, you know, as, you know, as a male, as someone who comes from, you know, uh, education, a good background, and just did not encounter any of those things. And um, I just felt kind of really, you know, really angry and kind of sick to my stomach that, you know, other people were being treated so much worse and um, were really just being abused. And I wanted to create something that could actually help level the playing field a little bit. And that's where that's where Know BC came about. So it was essentially like a Yelp or a glass door to rate investors. Um, so not only could entrepreneurs rate their experiences with investors, but investors could also rate their experiences working alongside other investors. I mean, that that's so critical, right? It, it kind of reminds me of, of a platform similar to like G2, you know, where it's software <laughs> based on customer reviews. It's kind of like that. But to your point, like we have that for uh, professors. If you recall, I forget what the, I think it's called Ray My Prof, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, Ray My Professor. Yeah, Ray My Professor, exactly. And, and that's like, man, if you think about everything we buy now as consumers, literally how much of that hinges on reviews. Dude, I, I cannot step outside of my house, select something without first looking at the reviews. I don't oh, know totally. if you feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely feel the same way, right? Like you need that power of, uh, of accountability, of social proof, you know, because everyone's making themselves look good online, but um especially in such like a relationship driven business like venture capital, I think the, uh, you know, the, the, the reviews and experience, especially if you're a new founder who doesn't have a ton of connections, like that's really critical. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it seems to be like a tight knit niche kind of subsector, right? It's always mm-hmm. had this like allure of even as an like if you if you ever ask someone who wants to get into VC from a from a university perspective, how difficult it is to crack, right? They never post jobs online or rarely do. Like to get to the top tier ones, it's all about connections and and what value you can bring, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that secretive allure that sometimes they they bring, especially for the top tier firms, you're kind of shedding light on transparently what they're like from a person to person perspective. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. I love it, man. So so you did that. You become a a board member for my investor for about two years. And then you kind of fast forward, you do a bit of angel investing, which I'm going to get to in a second. But let's get to the uh, the good part here, which is uh, Vinovest. I believe this is your third venture. Yeah, today, right? Third venture. All right. Correct. This was like left field. man. I, I mean, I, I kind of I, I get the know your VC. I get the invoice now that has links to where you are. What in the heck was was the was the link to, to wine, dude? Were you a connoisseur always or what, what was the uh, you know, the, the trajectory there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've always just been fascinated with wine, um, but it was really just a random article I came across. So it was, um, you know, as you mentioned, I was into angel investing. I was just really just passionate about investing in new things in general. And then I actually came across an article that said, find wine returns have outpaced S&P 500 returns over the past two decades. And I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. I want to understand why wine has outpaced the S&P 500. You know, I had this inkling and I think a lot of people do that, like, you know, age is like fine wine, like wine gets better as it ages and probably more expensive, but I didn't really know the numbers behind it and why that happened. And when I understood it, just kind of like that basic supply and demand factor um, of older the wine bottle gets, it's more and more rare because there's less of it in the world and it also gets better with age in the bottle. The fundamentals just made sense. And I was like, I want to try investing in wine. It sounds so cool. Um, sounds like a really fun investment too. And when I tried to get into it, I realized that you really need to be either super well connected in the wine industry or really, really wealthy to be able to even afford breaking into the space. And that just didn't really sit right with me that like only very few people can access this very high growth investment class that has been very, very stable and solid and lucrative over the past few decades. Very interesting. It kind of reminds me like the pain point in terms of like where the idea started. It kind of reminds me of the Shopify story, right? They, they, they look to go sell these surfboards. Uh, I think it was surfboards or snowboard, actually snowboards, I think was the beginning. Uh, online, but they 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 couldn't find a platform to do that, and they had to literally code the entire site themselves, which then they it led them to to think about, all right, hold on a second. Well, what if I don't have coding experience? What do I do? And and that that's actually what led to Shopify. It used to be called Snow Devils Snowboards. That was oh, the original I, concept. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting for, for to hear it from you. You know, it was something you wanted to invest in, couldn't do it. And sometimes that's that's what brews the the idea to start a new venture. Absolutely, very interesting. And so, you know, fast forward today, and and for context, as a disclaimer, I did invest um, some money just to even test it out to try it out. I'm loving the platform so far, man. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna open my my account as we speak here. But uh, the the reason I really enjoyed it and and I'm enjoying it so far is a couple things. One, it's such a interesting 
commodity to, to invest in, but it's also like as a connotation. I don't know if, if this is something that you guys are challenged with now, but you always think of wine, at least from an average person's perspective, um, to, as a consumer, right? Like unless, and why, why I say average is unless it's kind of like cigars, right? Unless you have the right, uh, you know, storage or, or humidor or whatever you want to call it, it's difficult to rack up like, you know, more than 20 bottles if you live in a condo. So I feel like the first thing you answered was convenience, right? The, the, the one of the challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, cause no one, no one is going to, you know, want to like drop tens of thousands of dollars to get all the infrastructure to even be able to start buying wine. Right. You want to have a low risk way to do it and an easy way to do it. And, um, you know, that's what I think was really lacking in the world before Reinvest came along. And so maybe the question people are wondering is like, where do you guys store these wine bottles? So we've got a network of storage facilities, um, you know, all next to major wine growing regions. So, you know, we've got one up in California, Napa, we've got several in Europe uh, with all the French wines, Italian wines, Spanish wines, et cetera. And we work with this network of warehouses that a lot of the wineries and professional merchants and distributors work with. So a lot of times when we acquire wine from these parties, the wine actually never moves. It's just digitally transferring ownership and the wine is just still sitting safe in, in a professional storage facility. Interesting. So you're basically outsourcing these, these storage facilities that, you know, would benefit from, from having obviously their, uh, their cabinets filled and you can use that in the interim when you're holding these, uh, these wine bottles. Correct. The other interesting part to, to note here, and that's something that I learned is you actually own the bottles themselves. This is not like a share because, you, you know, you hear of like masterworks where you own a share of an art piece. This is not the, I mean, this is you're, you're actually owning the physical commodity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of a unique and fun thing, right? Um, wine is one of those few alternative assets that actually have utility, right? You can't you can't drink a piece of art. Of course, you can appreciate it, but um, you can actually drink wine. And I think that's a fun part that like, hey, if, any day you have a special day in the future, um, you could actually drink that bottle of wine that you invested in. Very true. I mean, it's so I have my dashboard open now. I, I basically have 21 bottles, which is crazy to think. I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever had more than probably like five or 10 bottles at a time. Cause again, usually it's, it's on the consumption basis. Uh, you know, one case of, of BB greats, 2015, uh, one case of, of 12 bottles of Chateauneuf du Pape, which is a very, uh, very famous, I would say, wine. Uh, and then um, more of a brute vintage. This is in the 2000s of Paul Roger. So very interesting selection. And what I loved actually is the description you guys provide. So you're actually learning about um, about different wines as you're investing in them. Absolutely. That's, that's I think, the fun part, right? Like most people, they're coming in, you know, they know about investing, but they know nothing about wine investing, right? And like, I think the best way to learn and is to get some skin in the game, which you have, right? Now, now you're learning about all these wines that you probably never even knew existed. And now you're learning about the history, what makes them special, what makes them actually investment worthy. Um, and the hope is, you know, to get people to be educated about these new wines too, and you know why they're cool and you know, why they have been around and, you know, be able to discover, um, you know, why we've also chosen them. So typically with like hold periods, right? Because in, in, the, in the public markets, you typically see, you know, people can liquidate their position. Some people day trade. Obviously, with with wines, it's more of a 
usually a longer hold period, right, for them to age properly and, and gain more value. So what, mm -hmm. what would you typically recommend the, the hold period be for these types of asset classes? I think at least having a hold period of like five years as your time horizon, because, um, you know, really it takes, want, takes just time for the wine to age, right? And then it takes time for global consumption to do its thing and you know, other people consuming the remaining supply to make your wine more valuable. So I'd say it's a, you know, a decently like medium to long-term investment. Of course, some of these wines can age for multiple decades, but I think to get like a, a true kind of like uh, fair assessment of the asset class, it's like at least five years. Five years. Yeah. Five to seven. I guess that makes sense. I mean, it has mm. to be a bit of a long, longer hold. Uh, and how do you keep people engaged? I was kind of curious about that, like me having going through it now. And I've always been a longer type of investor, uh, generally even in public markets. But as a tech platform, like how do you reduce churn in that sense and, and, and keep the, the stickiness factor that otherwise would be present, say, with like Instagram, right? Yeah, I think for us, um, you know, that, that education portion, I think is going to be really key to our long-term engagement and retention, right? Because like we want to be able to encourage long-term investment thinking, right? And like what is going to keep you from, you know, keep you going back to the portfolio, right? We want to be able to give you new information other than new prices. So maybe it's like, um, you know, learning more about other wines. So, you, you know, you got an awesome champagne, awesome Chateauneuf du Pop. You know, what are the other ones that maybe other people are buying that you should keep an eye on? So uh, we're, we're thinking about different ways to be able to engage our users and be able to provide an experience more than just like charts and numbers because, you know, wine can be and should be a fun investment to to be interesting as well. Yeah, and, and the other, I guess, point I wanted to bring up is um, obviously related to, to like the, the management fees or, or the fees associated to the platform. Wondering if I know they're up on the on the website, but I'd love for you to kind of dig in as to exactly why uh, there might be a bit of a difference between, let's say, that and like a, an exchange traded fund or maybe some other fees associated with other asset classes and why particularly with wines, it could be, relatively speaking, seen as a bit higher. Yeah, so I think the main thing is like, it's a it's a living item, right? The, the wine can spoil, it can go bad if you don't have the proper climate, the proper humidity, you know, keeping it away from light and vibration and making sure that it is actually in the best possible condition to age. And I think on top of that, just the insurance aspect, right? The, say if there's someone who drops it or the power runs out right to, to keep the climate those are all like very very real risks to the wine that can make it make the value go to zero so i think the risk protection part of it is kind of our justification for having management fees um, you know it's not just kind of some number that we pull out and be like hey this is our our two and 20 right um mm -hmm. we want people to actually physically um, have these wines and you know protect them and make sure that uh, we're able to limit the downside of your investment so that's really why we have those fees right and, and i guess there's also protection on the physical bottles themselves there's like some insurance premium on on uh, to your point if they spoil or if they don't have a, a bottle breaks or whatever the case is um, that there's a bit of protection there yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's no, there's no like FDIC for wine, but we're trying to replicate something similar so people can feel safe with their, safe. With their assets. Yeah. And then the, the last kind of technical component just on vinyl I wanted to bring up is what I felt was really cool uh, was the, the, the AI component of finding the, the, the 
price match, basically. So let's say, depending on the type of investor you want to be, you get matched with the bottles and, and the platform can actually do that, especially if you're not as, as a sophisticated type of investor within wine. Can you just talk a bit about that as well? Yeah, so I think that is kind of the, the secret sauce for us, right? Because um, wine is a very subjective thing. We want to be able to take the subjectivity out and be able to get people the best possible um, investments to be able to start on. Um, and what's the best way to be able to do that at scale for a bunch of different um, you know, customers with different needs and different timelines and different um, you know, risk appetites and different goals for their investment? Um, that's really what we built that I think is, is kind of the key that's helped us scale so fast. And you're, you're primarily getting these, like, are, they, are these publicly uh, available lists? Like how, I mean, because at scale, it's, it, uh, it, it must be crazy to figure out, you know, the past, let's say, decade or 20 years worth of prices. And then you're kind of matching that. I mean, that, that, that must be pretty interesting, you know, in terms of, of, of the, the tech, tech component. Yeah, it's a lot of data. Um, I think that's really the, uh, the foundation the of our company was built on, right? If you don't have the the breadth and the depth of data, then the algorithm that we built is not going to be able to perform to its fullest um, potential. And with being able to get the prices um, both publicly and privately available to be able to get the right buys and the right sells, that's really, I think, the you know, the the biggest, meatiest operational challenges that we have that we've been able to execute on. Yeah, well, I mean, kudos on the traction. Dude, you, you guys launched in, in 2020 and you got my attention. Uh, and as a disclaimer, I'm probably going to put this in the beginning, but uh, although I'm invested, obviously can't rec- personally recommend, but, um, you know, this is just what I'm doing. Again, it would have to be appropriate for you and, and your investment thesis. Nonetheless, I'm super excited personally. Dude, I, I love the platform so far. Really, I'm not being sponsored or paid to, to speak about it. I just wanted to have you on because I'm really enjoying it and I thought it was a cool story. Um, so delving aside from from Vino, you're doing a lot of angel investing uh, on your LinkedIn. This is public. You're, you're, you've invested in Wink, which is another uh, wine company, I believe out of Cali, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. Legal Link, which was acquired by LegalZoom, Digital Brain, uh, Data Assembly, another known, uh, known name, Sunsama, several others. As an angel, curious, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. What do you typically look for as a startup uh, startup founder yourself? What is it that you look for in other startups when putting your own money into them? So I think the main thing is like really believing in the person. Um, what The way I think about angel investing is like this person has probably a, a pretty low chance of that company becoming a billion dollar company, right? But um if I think that this person is the right entrepreneur to be able to potentially have a billion dollar company at some point in his or her lifetime, that's who I want to back. Because like for me, you know, this is my third company, right? None of my previous two were billion dollar outcomes, but I think VinoVest is going to be the one. And the initial investors that backed my first business, you know, they supported my second one, they supported this one. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you hear the term like at bats, quite a lot in angel mm-hmm. investing. Um, and the more at-bats you can give a founder that you believe in, the greater his or her chance of you know, getting that home run will be. So for me, it's I really don't care as much what the business actually is. It's on like the, the founder and if I believe this person will be successful at some point in their life or not. 
Gotcha. Very interesting. Yeah, it's it, it's exactly what you said. Like the the at bat. I think the other one is kind of it's kind, it's kind of like a passport or a badge, right? Because you've done it so often, you you you've had successful exits. You know, it doesn't have to be the billion dollars, but I mean, even if you return the principal, if if the outcome was good, you were a good person to deal with. Um, you know, you had a solid growth plan. You were executing according to plan. These are the facets that investors look to you, and I guess you start looking to other startup founders that you're investing in. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and also, um, you know, another big thing is like, I wouldn't be where I am today without angel investors that believed in me. Um, and I know I'm really not at the scale to be like, you know, um, like writing too many checks, but I think just like, that's part of being a, you know, being an entrepreneur and supporting the startup ecosystem is giving people that, that chance, right? Cause without that, you know, that, that money to start, um, to start your business or to kind of keep going or keep your business alive. That's kind of like a make or break moment for a lot of people that they'll remember for, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that is really true. That, that, that impact early. It's tough though sometimes, right? Like to see that, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, the beauty in it, right? Um, like if you listen to the Jason Kalanakis, I think is his last name, mm-hmm. you know, the, the early investor in Uber, it's so tough dude, to see, like it obviously it makes sense in hindsight, but can you imagine like, you know, meeting the Airbnb founders or, you know, the Uber founders or even like some of the big names that we know now and, you know, think of it like 10 years ago, would you have really said yes? You know, I feel like intuition plays such a big part in it as well. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the, the intuition part, like it's it's so much more of an art than a science at this early stage, right? Because like, you can't ask for projections. You can't ask for like, you know, real hard numbers. Cause I think both the founder and the investor know it's kind of BS at that point. It's really just based on like, Hey, do you think this person's trajectory is going to go up at some point in their lives or not? And do you want to be along for that ride or not? A hundred percent. And has there been um, maybe one like six, very successful story on the angel side that you've been super happy about? Yeah, I mean, I think the the acquisition so far, you know, with uh, with Legal Link was awesome, um, and I think um, haven't had any home runs to be honest. But there's a lot of founders that I think have made a lot of great progress from where they are. You know, have raised subsequent you know Series A's and Series B's that you know look like a good investment on paper. But um, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, they can get to get to an IPO or a big acquisition in the in the coming years. That would be cool, man. I, I got one, one, one more for you. Um, just in terms of kind of advice that you've learned along the way, you know, starting three companies, being an angel investor, what are some of those tidbits? It doesn't have to be one specifically, but what are some of those tidbits that you've learned that you typically share with, with aspiring founders? I think the main thing is just don't give up. Like a lot of times you don't know how close you are to a breakthrough. Um, and you just, you know, it's easy to feel dejected when things aren't going right and you don't have, you know, product market fit or you don't have enough funding or something fell, fell through. But um, I think the big thing is like, believe in yourself and don't give up. Love it. Love it. And then just quickly on the, on the personal side, Anthony, I know there's a, you know, uh, what I feel like is an inspiring uh, story that, that has happened and would love I'm gonna get just gonna give it to you to to explain the story, and then maybe you can ask a couple of questions there. But I'd love for you to highlight for those who don't know. Yeah, so for for me, um, you know, a big part of 
what happened um, in my life almost five years ago was a pretty pretty serious accident. Um, I suffered a spinal cord injury, which left me paralyzed from from the neck down, um, and that um, that injury is permanent. So I'm I'm still in a wheelchair today. Still, I'm unable to move anything kind of below my chest and. Um, Living as a, a quadriplegic is, you know, you know, is is hard. Uh, it's it's really hard, and um, it's something that um, you know is is with me every day and for the rest of my life. So that's kind of another big component is like, um, you know, having that disability, but really not wanting that disability to control my life, and still, you know, still very fortunate to be able to run a company and do the things that um, I still love um, pre entry. And, and I appreciate you sharing that and your willingness to talk about it. I just thought it'd be, it'd be, I think, very valuable for people to hear specifically around like dealing with adversity, dealing with challenges, pursuing, uh, or, or sorry, persevering, I should say. And I'm curious, like what kind of common threads did you take from you being an entrepreneur to rebounding after that injury? Um, and like, just how, how did you, how do you get over that? Because I think so many people are sometimes roadblocked and they and they they take for granted to be honest some of the things that they have at their disposal until they don't have it you know what i mean and that's kind of the message i really want to want to highlight here yeah i mean um you know perspective is everything right i was kind of like you know felt like i was flying high i was young and like you know building a business and really felt like you know i could do anything and now you know just having something as basic as like you know being able to like get out of bed and, 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 and go for a walk. You know, that's something that's taken away from me forever. Um, but really not focusing on what I don't have, but focus on and being thankful on what I still have, you know, I almost, almost died. And I could, you know, could have had, um, you know, much more serious injuries if it had been like an inch to the left or an inch to the right. So like, um, you know, I think it's all about framing your perspective in a positive way and being able to focus on the good things. And it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever come across um, that there's actually, a, I'm just blanking on the name. There's there's this app uh, that um, one of my friends and, and is a startup co-founder out of Toronto. Uh, it's ba it basically highlights um, all the, the, the restaurants that are accessible. Uh, I'm just blanking on the name. I think I'll, I'll get it to you right after this, this episode, but uh, it's very cool, and, and I, I just feel like you can also. There's so much innovation that can come from that change of perspective as well. Like she decided, you know what? I she would show up to like let's say a restaurant or a library or whatever the, the case is, and it wouldn't be accessible. I.e., there would be just stairs. Uh, and she decided to create this like uh, curated app where people can can flag the, the the places that are accessible to individuals in a wheelchair, as an example. That's awesome. Yeah, that's something that I always need to do now is like whenever I'm going to a friend's place, you know, want to ask if like, hey, like, is your apartment or is your house accessible or like to go to a concert venue or even, you know, even something like going to a restaurant, right? And making sure that you have accessible seating and they're not like getting you up on like a booth, right? So, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, life is different. You have to plan a lot more for things, but uh, it's, you know, still still accomplishable to do a lot of a lot of fun things. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.